Welcome back to another episode of Addiction and Codependency Breakthrough. I am your host, Heidi Rain, and I am so excited about what I'm going to talk to you about today. Now, what I'm going to share with you are things that I had to learn the hard way, either through stories of the thousands of clients that I've worked with or hundreds of families of when things have gone wrong, and even in my own personal life and the experiences that I've had dealing with addiction in my own life. What I'm going to talk to you about today is serious business. It's probably one of the most important things I'm ever going to share with you. And it's so important to me that you're in the space to receive it. So here's what I want you to know. You are not alone in these mistakes that I'm going to share with you today. These are mistakes that have been made thousands, millions of times by people all around the world who don't know what to do. Let's be real. When you're dealing with an addicted spouse, you try one thing one day, it kind of works. You try one thing the other day, it doesn't work at all. It blows up in your face. There's so much confusion around what to do, what not to do. And it can be really maddening trying to figure it out on your own. It leaves you full of anxiety, up all night, wondering what to do. So I know already if I'm doing this video, here's what you need to know with this podcast or whatever platform you're on. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love your partner. I know that everything that you've been doing in an effort to help them is in an effort to help them. It's not malicious. You're not trying to hurt anybody on purpose. Now, why am I spending so much time saying this to you? Because what I'm going to tell you today is going to be hard to hear. You are going to recognize yourself in some of these mistakes, and you're going to get upset with yourself. You're going to think, man, I didn't realize that was so hurtful and harmful. And you're going to start to feel bad. You're going to start to feel maybe even guilty about some of these things that I'm going to share with you. That's okay. Feeling convicted or guilty means we're making some headway. Wow, I'm responsible here. I didn't realize that was enabling behavior or dangerous behavior. Responsibility is good and guilt is good if we take the information we learned today and do something about it and change the way we're interacting in these relationships. Shame is not useful here. Oh my God, I'm such a bad person. I can't believe now that we don't want to go into victim mentality here. Oh my God, I'm so, I'm such a shame. I'm so ashamed of the way I've handled this thing. That is not my intent here at all with delivering this information to you today. It's to empower you. It's to empower you to know that you have more influence in this dynamic than you know you do. It's empowering you to help your loved one to potentially, I have a very high success rate of helping families restore and repair the damage that's been done. I have an extremely high success rate at helping motivate people to get into treatment. I have extremely high success rate of helping you heal from everything you've been through in this relationship. So just know that's my intention. My intention is to equip you with information that could make the difference in the restoration of your family and the sanity and the peace. So all that to tell you the top 10 fatal mistakes partners make when dealing with addiction. Why are they fatal? Because unfortunately, when we make these kinds of mistakes, now you're not responsible for anybody's path on their addiction, whether they survive or not. I don't want you to feel that you're, you're responsible. Well, Heidi, you're saying fatal mistakes. Are you trying to tell me that I'm contributing to the demise of this person? Well, here's what you need to know. There isn't anything that you can do to force someone to get better. 
but there are things that you do that help someone stay sick. I don't know what that means to you or how that resonates with you, but I know that's never your intention. Your intention is never to enable this sickness. So let me teach you how to enable recovery. We're enabling things anyway. You're a fixer. You are a person who wants to help. You're a person who wants to make a difference in the life of your loved one. That's why you're trying so hard. You want to enable. Let's do it in a good way. Let's enable recovery instead of enabling addiction. So I have 10 fatal mistakes that we make. I'm going to riff on each one of these. Feel free to take a break from this. If this seems like a lot for you, this is going to be a long episode today. Uh, I'll make sure you're in a quiet space where you can receive and hear this. If I were you, I would get a notebook and a pen and start to take some notes and write some of this stuff down and maybe come back to it one mistake a day, one mistake a week. I don't know how you can digest this information, but I'm going to come at you today like a fire hose. And I don't intend to have you have to sit through this whole thing in one at one sitting because it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot emotionally to take in. It's going to be a lot intellectually to process and take in. So we're going to take our time. Now, having said that, I get the feedback from you that the videos are changing your life. That That's the feedback that I get. In fact, when my clients become clients, they usually have watched my videos for quite some time and say things to me that are so life-changing for me to hear. You know, like, hey, you've changed my life. You gave me the strength and courage and hope to do the thing I needed to do. You helped me get out of bed when I was too depressed to even move in the morning. I listened to you at nighttime to have peace before I go to bed. I'm so grateful, but I know the bigger difference I can make in your life and in your in your uh, dynamic, if you allow me to come alongside of you inside of our program, Addiction and Codependency Breakthrough. And we open the doors to this program four times a year. So I wanna encourage you, if you're interested in learning more and going the whole way and getting that one-on-one or one-to-many small group type of support that you need, go over to HeidiRain.com at any time and um, schedule a complimentary consultation. Now, I'm going to be dealing with my dogs throughout this whole video because, hey, real life, hey, come on over here. I know you want to play, but now's not the time. Come on. Hey, stop. Come here. Come here. Stop it. We're not doing that right now. I caramba. Okay. So the very first mistake that we make when dealing with the very first mistake, <laughs> hold on, let me just get this darn dog. Have you seen all my pets and in, in my, if you're listening to this podcast, you're like, what's she talking? I have a thousand pets. And so they're always disturbing me and doing something and ay, yeah, yeah. But this little guy, this is a puppy. So he's full of energy. He's a little, um, uh, a Maltese with a Shih Tzu. And so anyway, I digress. I know you're, you're wanting to get into this. So let's go ahead and dive in and just bear with me while these animals are all around my house. So the very first thing is something that we do with the best intention because we're trying to protect our loved one. And, but this is a fatal mistake. I have seen many terrible things happen because we do this one thing. And that is keeping secrets. Now, look, I know that you don't want to go talk about this to everybody in your life. There are some people that do not understand this. They never will. And a lot of us, if we're real, carry shame around it. You know, you have this great family, you have success, you have everything else you could ever want, but here's this addiction that's looming. And if the neighbors found out, oh my God, you'd be mortified, you'd be embarrassed. And you think you're hiding it 
you think you're not saying anything, but honest to goodness, people are knowing you go to that work party, you go to that event, you take them to the golf thing. And then before you know, they're falling off the cart and they're drunk and you have to usher them home before your coworkers find out. Many of my clients are in this dynamic where they're, they're in high level positions even. And they think, look, if, if so-and-so found out about this dynamic, it would just ruin this person. They can never know because nobody can ever know because it'll taint the vision that everybody holds of this person or who everybody thinks this person is. So you think you're protecting, you think you're doing a really good job with that or not telling their family. Maybe this person has been in recovery and they've relapsed and you say, well, I don't want to tell everybody they relapsed because the parents are going to be so disappointed. They don't think their heart can't handle it. They, I don't want to tell them because I don't want to upset them. So there are so many reasons that we keep secrets and, and to you and to you, they're good reasons. And I get it. I understand. I remember whenever my dad finally passed away and addiction took him and we were all gathered around at the funeral. And before that, I had wanted to share at the funeral. You know, my dad was a hardworking guy. He was a functioning alcoholic. He was a, a coal miner. He worked his way up in the coal mine and was a boss and very successful. And he was so loved. And the funeral was just full of people that loved him from the coal mine. And just, he was just such a good man. And, and, and people had come to celebrate him but I think everybody knew, and a lot of people were also struggling with alcoholism, as so it is in, in some of these places, and, and it's an epidemic everywhere, really, let's be real. And I remember going to my grandma and saying, you know, I really want to make a speech because I had had the pleasure of having my dad, before he passed away, he came to the treatment center where I was a teacher, where I was a coach and running groups, and I was doing therapeutic interventions and so on. And I was so proud of him because of what he had done in that three months that he was inside the treatment center and I'd worked with him and he had been an alcoholic my whole life and he was 62. So I wanted to stand up at the funeral and say, you know, he got better towards the end. I saw him sober. He was so brave. He confronted this in his sixties, his whole life he'd been drinking. And I wanted to say how proud I was of him. And my grandmother was like, you may not speak about this at the funeral. She was mortified to think that people would find out even after he passed. That's how much that secret, the, the shame um, that she held because of what was going on with him. And I, I was tempted at the funeral. I was like biting my tongue and there was this whole row of coal miners holding hats with lights on them. And, and I wanted to, in that moment, I wanted to, say something because I knew maybe if I said something about how brave he was and that he got help, you know, that somebody else might be inspired by that. And I looked over at my grandma and I was ready to say the thing. And, and she looked at me and shook her finger and I knew I can't. And now I'm tempted to keep secrets too, because I know it's not, we want to make other people comfortable. And I did it in that moment. I did it. I, I said, you're right, grandma, I don't want to hurt you. So I did it. I kept the secrets too. And, but now as I live my life, I, I, I say to myself, as much as I love my dad, I want to be able to talk about it because when I talk about it in this way, other people get to heal. Other people get to see their own relationships. And I know it's brave to do that. I know I'm not saying that I want you to sing it from the rooftops, but I want you to tell the people that need to know who are they? They are the people that can be of a support system. 
You know, the jig is up anyway. Let's be real. Most people are already pretty aware of what's going on. They already know, believe it or not, whether you think they know or not, they do. So you have to be wise with who you tell. But what I recommend is if you can't tell the neighbors and you can't talk about this with family, that you reach out and get into a program where you can talk about it. My program, I have many people that come in and they've never uttered this in public. And here they are in this forum and sharing and going, oh my God, I'm not alone. So keeping secrets, protecting somebody else from their own consequences or addiction. I've had many, now this video, this episode of this podcast is specifically for spouses of addicts and alcoholics. That's who it's geared towards. But parents do the same thing when their kids get in trouble and go to jail and they do everything they can do to get it expunged and out of the papers and the, you know, the papers that we're still doing that, but, you know, try to find a way to make sure that, oh my God, what are the neighbors going to think? There has to be a day where we're, we end the shame and the stigma around this. L let me tell you that there is no shame in addiction. There is no, uh, well, they come from a bad family and they come from a good family. And so, um, you know, it's expected that they'll be addicted, but my person, no, that doesn't go on in our family. We would never talk about that. Well, honey, it happens in everybody's family. It's the doctor who's an addict. It's the doctor's child. It's the principal's kid. It's the minister. It's the preacher. It's all of us. It's the leaders. It's the celebrities. It's everybody. It's the non-celebrities. It's the, it's the poor. It's the wealthy. It's everybody. It impacts everybody. And so what I want to encourage you to do is it's not be willing to not keep secrets anymore. And if you want to know who to tell and how to talk to you about this, a good start would be sending me a message and we can take it from there and I can direct you of where to go next. Why did my grandma keep that secret? Why didn't she want to talk about it? Well, that's mistake number two. Mistake number two is taking somebody's addiction personally and thinking that their addiction is about you, that it's a reflection of you. Wives think, oh my God, if everybody knows, they're going to think that my husband, that I'm screwed up and how can I let that happen? And if my wife is an addict and I'm the husband, I'm supposed to protect and take care of her and, and, and she's an addict and they're going to think what's wrong with me, that she's out there hula handing and doing whatever. My grandmother thought, well, if, if, if I, you know, tell on him, then, then I'm a bad mother and everybody's going to look at me and say, well, why do I have an addict? Well, how did, why did he die from alcoholism? What was wrong with me? Wives think if I tell on my husband, he's going to be mad at me and then he's going to divorce me. Husbands think the same thing too. Partners think the same thing too. We make it about us and then we think it's going to be a reflection of us. So if their addiction is about me, then I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to do what I need to do. Now I'm going to tell personal stories throughout this whole entire episode today. And I want you to know, I'm not doing it to throw anybody under the bus. I'm doing it because it's a mission and a ministry and a purpose of mine to educate you on the impact of this addiction and your behavior so that you can change something you might need to change. So your loved one can be well. So please understand my heart is in the, in the purest place. It is not a malicious intent. It is not to badmouth anybody. It's to educate and inspire and restore hope into your family that if we do the right things, then maybe we can make a difference in this epidemic. Maybe we can come together as a, as a society and be a, be a whole nation of cycle breakers that say, I'm willing to speak up, I'm willing to do. So you can't make this addiction about you. I remember uh, many times when I would run the family program where spouses would tell me, I'm afraid to confront them or do anything because they get so mad at me. They get so angry at me. I don't want them to be mad at me. I don't want them to be upset with me. And it's, it's such an, an ingrained way of thinking, but here's the ironic thing. 
you are not wanting to upset somebody to be mad at you. Meanwhile, they're uprooting and creating havoc in everybody's life around them. And you're protecting them. You're protecting yourself from them being mad at you. I, I, I know the feeling. I know we think if I hold their feet to the fire, Heidi, they're going to be so mad. If I get into the program and I tell them I'm in a program to get educated, they're going to be so pissed off. They probably will. They don't want that at first. They don't want you to be educated. They don't want you to know how to handle this thing because they're scared shitless. They're going to have to have to do something to be better. They count on your ignorance, which leads me into the third mistake, which is not being educated about addiction. But before I do that, let me tell you about this second mistake, just a little bit more with a personal story. So many times families would come to the family program and say, they hate me because I put them in this treatment. They hate me because I put them in the treatment center. And then at commencement or after they graduate from the treatment center, what does every addict and alcoholic say who successfully completes treatment? Thank God that you did that. I hated you. I was so mad at you that you held my feet to the fire. I was so mad at you that you called me out, set that boundary, but thank God you did because here I am. Here I am now better. And I, client after client after client would love and praise the person that held their feet to the fire because they got better. Now they'll continue to blame you and shame you and guilt you if they continue to use, well, you sent me to treatment and it didn't work. You did that. And look, and I'm still here because that was, that was pointless and you're, you made me do it. And I didn't want to do it, you know? So, so we get into this battle, but if they get better, they praise you. They say, thank God you called me out and didn't let me continue down the path. The other thing is the education that we talked about. That's one of the biggest mistakes. There are so many myths about addiction that we, we are not educated. And we say, well, I don't need to know about addiction. They need to know about addiction. They need to know. Well, they're under the influence in nobody's home, so they're not getting educated. So the healthier person needs to be educated. The healthier one needs to know what's going on. You need to be educated, not just on addiction, how it happens and why it happens and what recovery looks like, which is everything we cover inside of my program. Those are the basics. Obviously, you need to know all that stuff, what recovery looks like, how to spot a relapse, et cetera, et cetera. But you also need to know the impact of this addiction on you. I call that the psychological and emotional shrapnel that you now have from being a victim in somebody else's internal war with themselves. Shh, another dog, another bark. So I think that we need to see, okay, you know what? It is my responsibility to get educated and also to be educated on how it affects the whole family. If you have children, you definitely want to get educated on the impact of children. There are many resources to do that, of course. Um, a lot of you grew up in alcoholic and addicted houses and you just think you escaped and thank God that's over. But did you know that you're left with a lasting impact, that there are lots of uh, traits and characteristics that you developed as a result of being in a relationship with an addict and alcoholic or growing up in a relationship? So there's all these codependency patterns that are, that are now imprinted as a result of being in this relationship. And you need to be educated about those because why? Well, you can't fix what you don't recognize. So you stay stuck and unhealthy. So that education is really key. All right, let's keep moving through. Number four is rationalizing somebody's using or um, their addiction. Now, this is a tough one because especially with the teaching now that is that is talking a lot more about how trauma 
has a connection to addiction. And that is true, right? Gabor Mate is a really good person. Johan Hari is another really good person. Lost Connections is a beautiful book that talks about addiction. Anything by Gabor Mate or The Body Keeps Score. I mean, there are lots of really wonderful books educating how trauma is an influence there. But here's what I want you to understand. Yes, we all have our reasons for coping with drugs and alcohol through our traumatic experiences, but that's not exclusively why somebody becomes an addict or an alcoholic. So you don't do anybody a service when you look at them and say, well, yeah, your life rationalizing their behavior. Well, your life, yeah, you had a lot of trauma. You had this abuse and that abuse and this psychological thing and that thing happened to you. And no wonder you're an alcoholic. Yeah, I know you have massive amounts of anxiety. It's no wonder that you're an addict or an alcoholic. You get a pass and we rationalize their behavior. Well, you know, they had that thing happen to them when they were so-and-so. And then the actor alcoholic uses that. Did you ever watch an episode of Intervention where you can see when they're high or drunk, all they do is replay that trauma? Many times when somebody doesn't get well, that trauma is a reason for them to stay suck. They will use that trauma over and over again as a reason that they are alcoholic or addicted. Well, you don't know what happened to me and you don't know what I went through. And they stay in the what? The victim mentality. And that's what rationalizing somebody's behavior does. Trauma is not what creates addiction. The coping mechanism to the trauma is the addiction. So lots of people have trauma and lots of people don't become addicts or alcoholics. If you look at a family and they all grew up with the same kind of trauma, one's super successful, one's an addict and alcoholic, you know, they have all different types of children that emerge from this experience because um, addiction is one coping mechanism to, to trauma, but so is success. Success is another coping mechanism. Achievement is another coping mechanism to trauma. There's lots of high achievers. In fact, you probably had trauma and you're a high achiever and you didn't heal your trauma. You thought you escaped it. And now you're with a victim person and they have trauma too. And you're trauma bonded and you don't even realize that. That's why this education is so important. I know I told you this is a fire hose today. This is lots and lots of information. But when we work together, we have a minimum of three months to sort through all this information and to let it digest and absorb into your psychology and into your behavior eventually. And so that it just becomes a part of you. So no, don't rationalizing. You can say to somebody, you can have compassion for somebody. Yes, I understand that you have these terrible things happen to you and it's our responsibility to heal it. You're right, that's terrible. That's not your fault that that happened to you, but it, it, you're coping to what happened to you is your responsibility. How you cope, how you learn how to cope with what's going on with you is your responsibility and the way you're coping is killing you. And that's some dialogue that you can use in order to help support somebody's recovery and enable recovery instead of enabling addiction. Maybe you're on the other side of that and you say, well, nothing bad happened to them, Heidi. I can't rationalize their addiction at all because I'm scratching my head going, how the hell did you get here? You had a great life and a perfect life. Well, you don't know what somebody's unique psychology is. And many people become addicted for many different kinds of coping mechanisms, big trauma, little trauma, and everything in between. And so we don't want to surmise. We don't want to be putting our ideas of why and how somebody got to where they are on them and give them the reason they're using. Well, you know, and so many of you fixers will do that. So many of us fixers in this personality pattern, if you're wondering what the hell I'm talking about, what is a fixer? I have eight codependency patterns that we enact when we grow up in addiction or dysfunction or are subjected to it and have relationship trauma. You can download that free book at HeidiRain.com. So go over there and grab yourself a free copy. 
of that book. But the fixer in us wants to point out everybody else's problems and well, you're this way because that happened to you and that happened there. And, you know, and I do a lot of that too, but I do it, honey, I do it for a living. I don't do it in my personal relationships anymore. So just because you can see it doesn't mean that they're going to hear it from you. You're too close to the situation. Jesus could not be a prophet in his own land and neither can you be a sober coach to your alcoholic partner because it just doesn't work, right? Another mistake we make, I made so many notes because I didn't want to miss anything, is minimizing their use or their addiction. Now, this is another way we kind of enable by sweeping it under the rug, minimizing it, where I would remember, I would go, now listen, I'm going to talk about my own private personal life. Just know that this is in love. I'm going to talk about in particular my my stepmom who I love dearly and who loved my dad fervently for 30 years. And I'm super grateful that she did, but there were many things she did along the way that I know that she knows that was codependent and enabling. And she's well aware. And we've talked openly about some of these things. And so I also know that she did it out of the love of her heart. And sometimes what you need to know is that you're not enabling maliciously on purpose. Love really is blind. And sometimes we're so afraid to see, we're kind of like, yeah, I want to know what's going on with the addiction, but just halfway, I just want to look a little bit. I just want to take a little peek at what's going on because if I see it all, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to see it all as a wife or a husband, because that means I'm going to have to take action. So I, I we'd, we'd be over at my dad's house and we'd all be hanging around. And I, and I, I kid you not, my dad could fall down the steps Okay, which happened many times, many cracked ribs, many bro- broken things, many bloody evenings, but he could fall down the steps, tumble down, knock his head into the walls, come up bloody, battered, okay, and barely breathing. And he's clearly inebriated. He's clearly shit faced. And my stepmom would go, Honey, did you take your blood pressure medicine? <laughs> you know, like thinking he fell down the steps because he, and I say, well, no, he's drunk. I mean, he he's loaded. He's is he drunk? Is he drunk? I didn't see him drink today. He only had a couple beers today. He did not do his normal thing. He just had a little bit today. I didn't see that. Honey, do you need a sandwich? Are you lightheaded? We're minimizing. We can also be making excuses at the same time, right? Well, he didn't feel well today and he didn't eat his lunch and he didn't take his blood pressure medicine. He's not really drunk. He's just feeling extra, you know, lightheaded or whatever. We're afraid to call that out. Now, whether whether that's fear, I don't want to have to call it out because I don't want to deal with it today, or whether it's love, you think if you're more compassionate and make excuses and don't call it out that they're going to endear themselves to you more now and they're going to love you a little bit more so you don't have to you know, be the bad guy and be the one going, no, you're shit-faced. You can go, well, maybe you're just tired. Maybe you're tired, baby. Maybe you need to rest. Maybe you need to go to bed, you know? So I think that we also do that minimizing with our kids where the kids are going like, I'm an adult child and I'm saying he's drunk, he's shit faced, he's annihilated. But imagine little kids, if you have little kids in your family and there's a little 10 year old who's like clearly seeing what's going on and saying to you, mom's drunk, mom's drunk and your dad and you're trying to protect her from having a bad image with their kids. So you go, Johnny, she's not really drunk. She's just tired. She had a long day. Now Johnny thinks not only is mom drunk, but now you're a liar and you're picking mom's side over his and you're invalidating your kid there. See, again, I want to keep reminding you that as I'm going through this today, I am keeping it very real and very raw and I'm not sugarcoating it with you. I'm not minimizing it. Notice I am preaching and teaching and walking at the same time. 
I am walking my talk with you. I'm not going to minimize with you. I'm not going to rationalize with you. I'm not going to sugarcoat. I'll give you reasons, but reasons aren't justifications. Reasons aren't justifications. I know you have damn good reasons why you've been doing what you're doing, but I'm going to call you to the carpet because I know that fire that I want to light beneath you might be the exact thing you need to get into motion, to do things differently so that we can have a better result. I know it's not easy to hear. So let's keep going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not easy to hear, but here we go. <laughs> more, more, more. Okay. This is one of the major ones that probably is one of the most important things that if you can get a handle on, um, this alone will save lives. This one secret uh, thing that I'm going to reveal to you will be the the thing that, that could be the thing. I don't know. Um, it could have been the thing for many people in the past. And here's what I mean by this. So the, the mistake is waiting to see if they're going to get better, waiting to see. Now, this one usually happens after somebody's come out of treatment. They go into treatment, they do really great, they do fine, whatever. And then we they come out of treatment. And let me just use my own personal life so that you can understand what I mean by this. My dad came into the treatment center with me for three months. We had him for 90 days. He was healed. He was ready to go. He was well on his way. He's healed, meaning his body was certainly on the mend from 40 plus 50 years of, of alcohol abuse. Mentally, he was starting to become strong. I did not want him to go home after he left treatment because I knew that that relationship was still very codependent and very sick. And so I thought the best shot he'd have at recovery would be to go into a, like a halfway house after treatment. Now, if we work together, I give you this step-by-step, -step, everything you need to know about what to do when somebody gets out of treatment, how to set up their lives so that they're fully immersed in recovery and what it should look like. And I had this conversation with her and with him, but they chose to go home. It was Thanksgiving. They loved each other. They wanted to be with each other. Okay. I said to my father in therapy session with his therapist, I said, dad, I don't think you should go home. And he said, honey, Rain, my dad called me Rain my whole life, not Heidi. That's why it's my name. I've taken that on, Heidi Rain, in honor of my dad. So he said, Rain, um, I know, I hear you, but but I'm, I'm, I'm a grown man. I know you want me to go in that halfway thing, but I'm 62 years old. I'm not going to go in there with all those young kids. And, and I'm going to go home to my wife and it's Thanksgiving and I miss her. And I said, okay, I hear you. I said, but just so I could sleep at night, I want you to know one thing. I believe if you go home, you'll die. Not because you, you of anything else other than, I know you have the best intentions, but I know that if you start falling back into old patterns and relapsing, that nothing will be done and it'll kill you. And he looked at me <laughs> kind of surprised, obviously. And he said, I hear you. I love you. Don't worry. I'm going to be okay. I'm going home. And two months later, I got the call. On after Christmas, during Christmas, he had been sick, not feeling well. And the day before New Year's on December, I guess, 31st, he passed. I got the call at 630 in the morning. Um, my stepmom called me. Now, again, this is eight years ago. So I've had time to heal and I can finally tell that story without crying, uh, which is a real blessing on the healing journey. If you've lost anyone to this, you know the feeling. But what had happened was he was relapsing and drinking a little bit here and there drinking a little bit here and there. And when that happens, we say as spouses or partners, oh, well, let's wait and see if they do better today. They had a little bit today to drink, but let's see if they go to a meeting tomorrow. 
They had a little bit today, but let's see if they do that Zoom thing and get back on track. They had a, they had a little bit of drugs today, but let's see if they have less drugs tomorrow. And people die while we wait and see. Okay, that's the truth. So when somebody relapses, it is an immediate, okay. It's kind of like when somebody has cancer and there's a little bit of cancer that comes back and you go, let's wait and see if it grows. I want you to think of addiction the same way when somebody's relapsed and out of recovery. I want you to say to yourself, okay, the cancer's back. I want you to get on the horn and get them back into treatment and do what we need to do to get them well. Now you might be having so many questions right now. Oh, easy for you to say, Heidi, I've tried. What if they don't go? Now, this is why you join a program. This is why you have my brain every single week in a Zoom. You ask me the question and I give you the answer. I want you to consider that. Because if you really want to make that difference, that's going to be the way we're going to do it is by working together where you can ask me that question and I'm going to give you the answer. It's going to be recorded and you can play that for the rest of your life and have it in our library so that you know. But for now, I'm going to tell you just the simple answer is we get them back into treatment. The cancer's back. We go back to the treatment center. You don't wait and see if cancer grows. You get it while it's little. You kill the monster while it's small. He had a beer. You don't wait tomorrow to see if he has 14 or 17. Does that make sense? You do what you need to do. Okay, let's keep moving on. Let me look at my paper here and see. Um, another mistake we make is that we believe the kids are okay. That is a fatal mistake that we make. Your kids are not okay. They might seem okay. And why do they seem okay? Your kids that are growing up in an alcoholic and addicted home seem okay because that is the only option that they have. <laughs> You have a, a raging alcoholic or addict or even a moderately functioning alcoholic and addict or whatever we're going to rationalize or minimize. And you think the kids are great, but a kid's coping mechanism to addiction is excellence. A kid's coping mechanism to addiction is perfectionism. A kid's coping mechanism to addiction is be quiet, go up in your room, shut up, do not make any problems, go away. You have enough problems in the house. Don't be one. A kid's coping mechanism is to disappear. A kid's coping mechanism is to be funny and make jokes and make light of situations. A kid's coping mechanism is to become the little parent. A kid's coping mechanism is to go and get in trouble at school sometimes. Not all of them are high achievers. Some of them go become a scapegoat and get in trouble. And there are roles we take on as kids in order to survive the family dynamic. But don't think for one second, because Sally's making straight A's and a captain of the cheerleading team, and she's out there rocking it and dad's raging alcoholic, she's okay. She's not okay. She doesn't have anywhere to go to talk about this. She's mortified and embarrassed. She's riddled with questions and anxiety constantly, but she copes through achieving. I want you to understand Every single person in your family is affected by this addiction. And when you wrap your head around that and know that, then you can set about the business of helping them. Oh, great, Heidi. So now you're telling me the whole family's messed up. Great, great. So I messed up the whole family. Now we're going to go into this behavior. Another mistake we make, we're going to personalize and internalize this, just like grandma did at the funeral. And now we're not going to speak our truth because we don't want to look bad as parents and a bad mom or a bad dad because your kids are getting fucked up as a result of the alcoholism. Don't let that be you. You've got to be stronger than that. You've got to take an aerial view here. You've got to be better than that. Okay. You've got to rise above that ego to the spiritual realm and say, I need to take some action. Heidi might be right here. My kids might be suffering. And even if you just start a conversation, if you're not going to work with me, which I hope you do work with me, but if you're not at least start a conversation, I know this must be hard for you. 
I'm so proud of you, but no, you don't have to be perfect. I know this must be so hard for you, but just know that if it's not, I know you're okay, honey. I know you're okay. You're so strong. You're so wonderful. But if you're ever not okay, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to have it all together, honey. It's a safe place for you to be able to talk about. But if you're not a safe container, if you're the spouse that's spinning out and you don't, you get, you're on the roller coaster of dysfunction and you don't know how to strap yourself in, you're never going to be able to take your kid on the ride and strap them in and know how to go. So you've got to get that education. And it's the other all intertwined. Another mistake we make is using love as a reason. And this is dangerous for everybody. Like when the kid says, well, dad just must not love us or I'm not enough or why am I not enough for you not to stop? And this is an education issue. We don't know enough about addiction. So we make it about love. If you love me enough, you'd quit. I mean, love has nothing to do with it. And let me just release this from you. Okay. Because the reality is you're asking somebody who's actively addicted, who the very nature of their addiction prevents them from loving themselves to love you enough to quit. They don't even have enough love for themselves. How are they going to have enough love for you? Leave love out of it in confrontation. Definitely leave love out of it with the kids. You start singing that song. Well, if dad loved us enough and maybe he'll love you enough to quit or dad loved you enough to quit for you. We say all this kind of weird shit to our kids or to ourselves. Then when dad relapses or mom's off the rails, we go, I guess they didn't love me enough. And we create a story and then we have relationship trauma. And then we get into relationships with people who don't know how to love us because that was the example I'm trying to prevent so much dysfunction in the future. I'm trying to heal your future generations by helping you intervene now. Okay. So much wisdom here. I didn't come by this easily. I want you to understand this is wisdom. This is not common sense. you That's another reason not to feel bad, okay, about what I'm teaching you. Oh my God, Heidi, you're saying all this. And this is like, it's wisdom, not common sense. Wisdom comes from decades in this industry, decades in the helping business, decades of working with thousands of addicts and hundreds of families and, and decades of all these stories and decades of ex personal experience. And I just want you to know, this is wisdom that you can tap into. I know you tap into it through the videos, but you could tap in personally to my power and my wisdom and my strength and my hope. And we can have these interactions inside of the program. Go to HeidiRain.com if you want to schedule a complimentary consultation. Another mistake we make is all setting ultimatums instead of boundaries. Now, this is a big one because there's a fine line between the two things, but an ultimatum is essentially a manipulation to try to get somebody to change. And a boundary is set to protect you and your family. So an ultimatum is you better change, you better change because if you don't change, this is going to happen and we're going to do this and knowing damn well, you're never going to do that thing that you say you're going to do. And a boundary is protection. A boundary is knowing how to set up psychological, emotional, physical, financial, and spiritual parameters so that you can survive this thing. Now that I have a standalone program on my site. It is called boundaries with an addict or an alcoholic. Go buy that right now. It's You can go purchase it and get immediate access. It's a standalone course. It's not a coaching program. It's a course and you go through it. It is four, four uh, lessons and that's life-changing. My husband and I role-play in it. Go buy it right now. Start there if you're even curious. But that's a mistake we make is setting ultimatums over boundaries. So you need to know how to set a boundary, how to articulate that boundary. And you can start with that tra training that I have made for you, immediate access at HeidiRain.com.
So the last thing, let's go through these again. Um, believing it's your fault, we talked about. Rationalizing, minimizing, keeping secrets. We started with that. Waiting to see. We talked about that. Believing the kids are okay. Using love as a reason for them to quit or not quit or whatever. Ultimatums over boundaries. Not being educated, we talked about. And the last thing is this. Thinking it's not your problem. The last fatal mistake we make in addiction as a spouse is believing it's not our problem. Well, Heidi, it's not my problem. It's their problem. I'm kind of perfect, you know, and I know you are, you are amazing. Look at you. You're here. You're learning. You're an amazing human being, but it is your problem. It is your problem. And you inherited the problem because what has happened here is again, you have psychological, emotional, financial, physical, and spiritual shrapnel from being a victim inside their own internal war. They are at war with themselves and you likely have a lot of shrapnel. You need to get educated on what that shrapnel is and pick it out piece by piece. Why? So that you can be a fully functioning human being so that you can go into work and you can go into your business and you can create the thing you want to create without your brain being hijacked and psychologically tortured with the stories over and over again and worry and fear of what's going on with your loved one. You want to be emotionally present in your other relationships and with your children without being hijacked on the emotional roller coaster that the addict takes you on. You want to be financially sound and know how to protect yourself and your finances from the horror and the terror if they lose their job or whatever happens, or if you're providing for them how to protect your finances. There's a lot to learn. There is a lot to know, but make no mistake. It is your problem. And I have the solution. I have a step-by-step -step solution, a step-by-step -step system that can help you recover from this. Number one, recover from the toxicity, recover. And number two, restore your family and hopefully get your loved one the help that they need through knowing exactly what it should look like every step of the way. So thank you so much for number one, being here today and listening to this and listening to these fatal mistakes. I know that it wasn't easy to hear these, but what I want you to know for sure is if you can take heart and you can assimilate, like let these absorb, integrate what I'm telling you into your daily life and think, man, I, I can just start to catch myself making these mistakes. Let that be step one. Start to build awareness around which mistakes you're actually making. Do you know already listening to this, you're making all 10, then you need to book an appointment. Go to HeidiRain.com. Do you know you're making a few? Take a look and see if you can start to make some changes. But I still want you to book an appointment at HeidiRain.com so that I can take you the whole way. Okay. I love you so much. Please share this subscribe, get notifications. We want to further this message. We want to help as many people as possible. So much of the reason that I do this work is because there was a big gap and I wanted to fill that hole because what happens is there's a lot of help for the addicts. There's a lot of help for the alcoholics, but the family is the one that struggles, particularly spouses, because the way that you handle this as a parent is a little different sometimes than the way you handle it as a spouse. And you need a specific way to handle it. Now I have groups just for just for parents as well, but I have groups just for spouses because your issues are unique. Your challenges are very different. You have concerns that the moms and dads of addicts and alcoholics don't have a different set of problems, a different set of issues. And I can help you tackle those one by one. I love you so much. I hope this was helpful. I'm gonna trust that it is. And I hope you take excellent care of yourself. And until next time, I'll see you really soon. Bye-bye.